Why aren't more men vegan? Should we be celebrating Spain's groundbreaking new animal rights law or questioning why bullfighting has been ignored? And is fake meat just for astronauts? Anyway, that's enough of the falafel. I'm Anthony, he's Richard, and it's time for episode four of Vegan Week. Thanks for joining us for episode four of Vegan Week, sponsored by the fabulous people at Fire and Flow Coffee, a specialty coffee roastery based in the Cotswolds with a fully vegan coffee shop on site. Fire and Flow is a vegan founded company run by three friends, Shah, Callum and Phil. We're incredibly grateful for their backing of this episode. And a bit later in the show, we're going to be telling you a bit more about them. But the reason we're all here is for the week's vegan headlines, news, commentary and discussion. Who's we? Well, it's all of us. It's every one of you listening. It's me. It's Fire and Flow Coffee. And it's this man. He is the best known half Spanish vegan connoisseur of homemade tempeh in the North Cardiff area. It's my pal and yours. It's Richard. Oh my God, what introduction. I'm, I, what will you do in 10 episodes time? How will you introduce me? I nearly gave the first bit of your postcode. Um, as part of that, but I just changed it to North Cardiff. That's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey everyone, great to be back and my goodness, what a show we have in store today. And Anthony, I'm glad that we're still talking after last, last week's discussion topic. Yeah, it was a close run thing, wasn't it? In, in fairness, it sounded a lot more heated than it felt at the time. I think at the time we were we were having a whale of a time, but afterwards it sounded like we were about to hit one another. Anyone, anyway, anyone joining us for the first time, remember that you can go back to listen to any of our previous episodes. Um, and in fact, once you have listened to at least one episode, you will be able to give us a star rating on your podcast platform, uh, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or whatever. If you could take a couple of seconds to do so, we'd be so, so grateful. Um, and thank you indeed to all of you who have already done so. Coming up late in the show, we'll be deep diving into a conversation about why more men aren't vegan in response to a study released this week. We'll also be sharing listener comments and feedback, including an interesting theory about who the mystery Belgian listener might be. Yes, but this is the Vegan Week podcast, and as the name of the show suggests, we are first and foremost a news-based show. So we're going to start things off with a rundown of our top 10 vegan news stories of the week. Sounds good to me, Anthony. Right, that's enough of the falafel. It's time for this week's news. Okay, as per usual, we have selected 10 news stories to share that have come up in the last seven days. As ever, all the headlines relate to veganism, animal rights or outcomes for animals. Anthony, I've been thinking about our news section and I've decided we could benefit from having it a bit more organised. You'll see what I mean and hopefully you'll like it. So to start with, I've grouped together these three stories from the world of politics, from Euronews. Spain rolls out new animal welfare law. Yeah, this is the news that the Spanish government has announced this week the adoption of a new animal welfare law coming into force. The law targets those who mistreat animals uh, by bringing in fines of up to €200,000. So really pioneering stuff there. The downside is that things like uh, bullfighting, 
dogs used for hunting and dolphins which perform in marine parks they're all remaining unchallenged by the new legislation so some quite significant gaps in there that we might have hoped for the biggest thing that stuck out for me it bans the buying of pets in shops and online Uh, it does give shops a grace period to find homes for these pets Um, and from now onwards uh, pets will only be sold from registered breeders um, and they will be allowed into restaurants and bars where previously uh, they've been tied up outside Wild animals like lions or tigers have been banned from circuses. Uh, The owners of these animals have been given six months to comply. Uh, And as stated earlier, marine parks may still use dolphins, but once once the animals die, they, they cannot be replaced. The main point of contention in this and the main sort of source of discussion surrounds dogs used for hunting. A big part, it seems, of of hunting life in Spain using dogs um, they are exempt there's no rules or anything uh, that are changing to do with with their livelihood despite the fact that there's lots of documented cases of, of horrific treatment of dogs that are used for hunting hunters have vowed to fight any attempt of the government to, to include similar legislation um, for hunting dogs someone called Manuel Gallardo who is from the Royal Spanish Hunting Federation has said this law represents a direct threat to the viability of hunting in Spain it's kind of the point I think isn't it I don't think any of us would argue that yes we do want hunting in Spain to stop and, and indeed anywhere um, but Rich obviously uh, a story close to your heart it, it seems like yeah. massive massive steps forward here isn't it Massive steps forward in some areas, especially when it comes to the online and retail sale of animals. Um, I'm not sure about the breeding because that can become a bit of monopoly and uh, there's no mention about the welfare of those animals and just completely ban it. There's been a lot of problems in Spain and there still is a big problem. The fact that many, many animals are abandoned at the start of the holiday season. So yes, I would say let's be a bit positive. This is a move in the right direction, despite the fact that many, many animals for many different purposes, let me put that, you know, purposes i don't like using that word but seems like they've been ignored and there's been some complaints already in spain and i've heard from some of um, stories in spain like for example people have been used for a lot of time just they go and buy bread so what they do is they'll walk their dog tie them in a lamppost uh, go and get the bread two minutes outside well you can't do that now yeah yeah um so yeah, steps in the right direction. Let's see how they enforce it. And sorry, I'm dominating this, but one of the problems with hunting also is what's called the synergetic farms, which are farms that raise animals or breed animals, not for meat, but for hunt. Oh, really? You know, that's a big problem. That's Gosh. a big, big problem in Spain. So you'll have deers, you'll have, you know, sort of the animals that hunters want to hunt. They'll breed them just ready for the season, let them out so they can um, hunt them. Gosh, yeah, that's awful, isn't it? I, I did read that the, the Spanish Hunting Federation represents um, over a third of a million hunters in the countries. That's that's a big deal, isn't it? It's, I mean, it's it's fantastic, some of these steps forward. And, and, and I would say, like, a lot of them are, are further forward than... Um, animal welfare laws that we have in this country um, but obviously there there is this kind of glaring omission and I think a lot of people do associate uh, rightly or wrongly they associate uh, Spain with bullfighting um, do, and that, yeah. that's been untouched by it do, do you think we should be uh, lingering on that or, or focusing on the positives and and, and and hoping that that can have a domino effect in other countries or I mean obviously it's, it's still a big issue isn't it bullfighting 
It is a big issue. There's been loads of campaigns uh, just to stop it. But I think I would look at the positives. Let's see how they enforce it. It's very important that this, it's not only a law, but it's well enforced. And at the end of the day, what will change bullfighting in Spain or other sort of activities will be people's uh, behavior. If they change the behavior, if they change the way they feel and think about animals, all these things will be phased out. So yeah, let's be positive. Yeah, yeah. And like I say, hopefully it, it leads to a domino effect in other countries. Um, that Just a, a final note, it's a, it's currently a hung parliament in Spain, isn't it? So I think that the article I read said that there, there might be elements of this that could be not open to interpretation, but could, could change as, as things politically change in Spain. But I think that the main crux of it should still stay in place. Yes. And one of the things, just one thing to add, maybe I'm talking a lot because it's a Spanish story. Imagine one of the that. Things they, sorry? Imagine you talking a lot about a Spanish story. How dare you? I know. One of the things that would be a step forward is to protect animal sanctuaries. I know they only represent a minority of animals, but they're still considered like farmed animals subject to the same laws. Now, don't get me wrong, we need to protect farmed animals and we need to stop farming animals. That's my point. Mm. But at the moment, they have no protection whatsoever. So any enforcement by any law can just kill all the animals at any given time. Yeah, similar to so, uh, to what we saw in Italy a couple of weeks ago. Exactly. Okay. From The Economist, UK government seeks to accelerate approval of cultivated meat to boost food security and sustainability. Yeah, so this is the news that UK ministers and regulators are looking to accelerate the approval of cultivated meat. So kind of lab-grown meat, I suppose a lot of people refer to it as. Um, and they're, they're hoping that this would boost food security. So our, our kind of Lack, uh, so we wouldn't be reliant on other countries so much uh, for imports um, as well as sustainability. Now, currently, approval for the first cultivated meat product is still pending in the UK. Only an Israeli company called Aleph Farms um, have submitted a request to the Food Standards Agency. Uh, they want to launch cultivated beef steaks in the country. But that's the only request that has been submitted to the FSA. The process is estimated to take at least 18 months, uh, but apparently the FSA is considering reducing unnecessary requirements to simplify the approval process for other cultivated meat companies to speed it up. The Telegraph has reported that the UK government intends to sign an agreement with Israel to enhance cooperation in this novel food sector. Why Israel, you might be thinking? Well, Israel's government considers alternative proteins a national priority. It's a big deal over there. And it's home to many cultivated meat companies, as, um, including Aleph Farms that I've mentioned, but also Future Meat Technologies, Stakeholder Foods and Super Meat. The odd thing, though, Rich, is that these cultivated products have yet to be approved for sale, not just here in the UK, but also in Israel. So you've got all these massive companies in Israel kind of getting ready to go and they're not allowed to sell their stuff anywhere same as in the UK but hopefully that's going to speed up well I have to say to this I've had uh, a few conversations with people about cultured meat when they say you know you're having an argument with a non-vegan and you try to find common ground and I've been seeing that the perception of cultured meat is that it's not as healthy as regular meat and makes me wonder if all these delays will have a negative impact in people's perception and therefore will be seen as a less 
a substandard product or a less good product. I don't know why they take so long to prove it. I know there's lots of regulations and the Food Standards Agency needs to do a lot of research to approve something. But yeah, I'm worried about the perception that this will have. Yeah, interestingly, this, the, this story said that 34% of UK consumers said they'd be willing to try cultivated meat. Obviously, that's less than half, uh, but it's a new product. And as well, it's not just a new product. It's a completely new concept, isn't it? And everybody knows that it's been artificially created. So I think that's quite promising. And with all this money behind it, you'd you, you think there's going to be significant marketing too. And that eventually it will become part of the culture that earlier this year, the UK government invested £12 million in the cellular agriculture market. Uh, manufacturing hub they want to create world leading facilities basically not just to meet our needs as a country but i think their hope is that the uk can become a bit like israel can become a world leader in this creating lots of lots of jobs lots of money for the economy and and they really want to push it forward yes it's positive but unfortunately it won't be so positive after the next story from plan based news uk environment secretary slams fake meat and at the Conservative Party conference. Yeah, so on the one hand, we've got ministers and regulators saying, yep, we need cultivated meats. Let's go for it. Let's accelerate it. Then on the other hand, you've got the Conservative Party, who are the governing party here in the UK, uh, who at their national conference this week are putting out a soundbite saying, fake meat's a load of old rubbish. It's just for astronauts, but not for the rest of us. It's a lot of point scoring going on at this conference at the moment. It's Some of it's been really horrid, I have to say, and we'll, we'll come on to it in our, in our main discussion. We saw Rishi Sunak a couple me- uh, weeks ago uh, doing a bit of a soundbite about meat tax and saying, oh, vote, vote Conservative because we won't put a meat tax on. Uh, it's been the UK Environment Secretary's turn this week. Therese Coffey, she launched an attack on fake meat in her speech at the party conference in Manchester. She told attendees that she would absolutely not tell anyone that they should not eat meat. Uh, she said that the UK's farmers produce the best food in the world to the highest animal welfare standards. Uh, and then she then added, but there's some green zealots who think our farmers should stop rearing livestock and instead we should eat fake meat. I'm absolutely not going to tell anyone that they should not eat meat. Fake meat might be okay for astronauts, but when people think of a meat feast, I want them to be thinking about great Welsh lamb, our Aberdeen Angus beef, our saddleback pork, not some pizza topping. I mean, the first point I want to ask you, Rich, do do you actually think she knows what a meat feast pizza is? Because it sounded ridiculous. I'm not sure, really. I mean, there's lots of pizzas, lots of type of pizzas. So are we questioning the ingredients of the pizzas or or what's that about? It it sounded like absolute lunacy. And I have to say, like, we we try and keep politically neutral on this podcast. But the Conservative Party this week have made it very difficult to do so because some of their speeches have been absurd. She... She's. I don't know whether she's got like a mad script writer, a speech writer, but she starts talking about fake meat being okay for astronauts. But if people think about a meat feast, we want them to think about this, not about pizzas. It's it's like she's having a go at pizzas by the end of her sentence. It's completely know, bizarre. Should the politician talk this way? Honestly, what? someone that's representing the whole country from an environmental point of view, should they be speaking in this tone? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's just complete point scoring, isn't it? And it's it's putting environmental matters 
to to the back of the list really and obviously from our point of view from a from a vegan standpoint it's putting animal welfare right right at the back of the list too i mean the the, the great thing about this um is that we we picked this bit of news up from plant-based news and they've written an open letter to her to the environment uh, secretary uh, pointing out all the environmental negative impacts of of continuing to eat meat and and not encouraging people to, to try plant-based proteins and more plant-based foods so um you know there's there's a fight back um it's a it's a shame our government is um is being so so hyperbolic about this i suppose yes and in no way i talk for myself as vegan in no way we want our farmers to become you know jobless we don't want anyone to go th- uh, through any struggle i think we should help any person that's working in the animal factory farm industry or we should help them to transition to more sustainable ways of feeding our population we should be proud of helping people to change not to confront people and create a debate where no one will win because we know what happens we polarized i'm left wing you're right wing we'll never we're never going to agree so why don't we build bridges and politicians nowadays should be the ones building bridges so the population can move forward yeah they should be but it's certainly certainly not much of that has been done in manchester at the conservative party conference this week unfortunately no no okay what about if we move away from politics now yeah let's do it (laughs) the next two stories feature campaigns from group advocating for animal rights from peter james cromwell mocks starbucks executive in video slamming vegan upcharge yeah, so this is the latest video from Peter, uh, released just at the end of September. We just missed it last week. Uh, and it features actor James Cromwell, who you may have heard of. Um, and he is posing as a greedy, fictional Starbucks executive who exploits eco-conscious customers by charging them up to 90 cents more for vegan milk, even though the chain reported $3.3 billion in profits last year alone. You can watch the video on Peter's website. You can watch it on YouTube. It's about a minute long. It, As well as um, James Cromwell being dressed up in a Starbucks uniform, talking to camera in a sort of mock-up of a coffee shop, or I suppose it probably is a real coffee shop, there's brief footage of the dairy industry. There's brief footage showing the effects of climate change. And as I said in the intro, they, they mentioned this surcharge that in some cases up to 90 cents extra if you want soy milk or almond milk they mention the fact that the new ceo of starbucks has been given a 1.6 million dollar cash sign-on bonus as well as all the profits that they're making to be clear this is not going to be an ad that goes out you know in the middle of the super bowl or anything like that it's just available on youtube and uh, peter's hope is that when people are googling coffee it was it was recently uh, world coffee day and things like that this video will come up and sort of be a bit of anti-Starbucks publicity and and showing that actually they're being arguably quite mean to us vegans and people who want plant-based milk. Rich, what what were your thoughts on this? First of all, I couldn't stop myself from watching it two, three, and four times. Okay. Oh, really? <laughs> oh yeah. And I'm not a big believer in single-issue campaigns because I think you focus on one thing, you know, it appears another fire appears elsewhere, so I, I'm not being a big believer in single-issue campaigns. However, this video is fantastic. I, re- I really loved it, and that's why I had to watch it two, 
three and four times. It's quite funny, isn't it? Like, I mean, obviously he's a professional actor, but like it's it's quite amusing. I, I, perhaps my one drawback is it, it's basically sarcastic throughout. Like the whole tone throughout is sarcastic. Um, and I think sarcasm as a form of humour after a while can come across as a bit bitter and a bit snarky. So I don't know if if, if you're not already on this on the vegan side of things. I think, but after a minute of a vegan being really sarcastic on camera, I don't know how much you're going to be on their side if you're not already vegan. Yes, and I don't know if people will also think of big corporations as greedy because of capitalism. Mm. You know. Because it touches on that. And I know it's all about profits and it's all about making money, hire more people, grow the business. But there's an element of that anti-capitalist also, from my point of view. Yeah, and I think that's why it's going to work really well for people who are already on that side of things. Yeah. Um, but I did I did kind of think to myself, well, if I was on the board of Starbucks and we have a new CEO coming in, I'd want to make sure I gave them a $1.5 million bonus because like actually that's a massive massive chain you've got to have the right person you want to make sure they're happy and blah blah i'm not saying that you should have done that but you know if if i was in that position i i can see why you would but to to be fair i I hear what you're saying on on single issue campaigns rich but i was thinking about it and and actually like going into a coffee shop a, a mainstream coffee shop that's a real nice easy way into trying a vegan product isn't it like if it's there if oat milk doesn't cost any more than dairy milk it more or less tastes the same and and you're just there at starbucks one day and you're like oh do you know what i'll give this a go oh no it costs 90 cents more i'm not going to give Absolutely. it a go so yeah. so as, as single issue campaigns go i can kind of see why peter are, are going after it actually so um yeah good for them good funny advert okay on to another campaign using film to portray its message from vegan for the animals A Day in the Life of a Farmed Animal, new vegan documentary released. Yeah, so this is the news that there is a new animal rights documentary out. It premiered on World Farmed Animals Day. Uh, That was on October the 2nd. And it's called A Day in the Life of a Farmed Animal. It's a collective project. The aim is to empower people around the world to speak up for farmed animals, share their stories, show their personalities and raise awareness about the unnecessary suffering that they go through every single day. 25 different filmmakers from 11 different countries put together footage for this. So it's a a lovely collaborative project. Um, The producer, Sean Monson, says, this is a truly visionary film, one that draws you into the lives of animals all over the world. It's a film that achieves the miraculous, not only telling a story from the animal's exterior, but somehow from their interior as well. Uh, And the film's available on their website as well as their YouTube channel. Now, that is what the producer says. I've watched the film. There's lots of lovely bits about it. There's lots of really nice bits to it. Uh, Sorry, nice is probably not the right word, but effective. I have to say, though, I would not recommend it as a as an animal rights film for somebody. If if you've watched lots of animal rights films, lots of vegan documentaries and you're interested in seeing another one, then go for it. It's it's free. It's on YouTube. It's 40 minutes long. What do you mean? What what issues? So the the main thing was there's deliberately no dialogue, there's no captions, anything like that. And I get that as a stylistic thing, like a nice arty film or whatever. But it really needs a narrative for the simple fact that they show footage from industrial animal agriculture and animal sanctuaries. And if I'm not vegan 
and I've never seen footage of animal agriculture before. And I watch a couple of the couple of the clips they do and think, oh my God, this is awful. And then they show a clip from an animal sanctuary and people are rubbing this pig's belly and loving it and it's got all this space and it's it's fantastic. But I've not got someone telling me that that's an animal sanctuary. I'm going to think, well, not all farms are bad. I'll buy my pork from that farm. Uh, that, that, that one seems okay. And like I say, I completely understand why you'd, you'd go for this like artistic way of doing a film without a narrator or anything like that. But I, I thought it just completely undermined it. And it happened several times. There's several lovely, lovely shots from animal sanctuaries of animals having a wonderful time in and amongst the industrial agriculture stuff. And there's no one telling you that it's at a sanctuary. D- does that make sense? Yeah, I, I understand what you mean, because you want it to be effective. You want it to get to people and to understand the message. Um, I find it difficult, you know, when someone is really trying and you feel like we need more people in this world trying to do things to get the world as uh, go vegan. So it's very hard when you might not like it or you might feel there's lacking something lacking. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, there's some really lovely bits in there and some really effective bits in there. I think maybe if you so if you showed this to somebody who wasn't vegan, but but you were vegan yourself watching it with them, I think it could work because that, that that's my only real criticism of the film is you need to know which bits are sanctuary and which bits are film. And I think if, if you're watching it with someone who's not vegan, you can say this bit here is a sanctuary where people are looking after the animals. Oh, and this next clip here, that's back in the farm or that's in industrial fishing or whatever. Do you know what I mean? I don't know, you know, maybe next week I'll come back and say, Anthony, what do you on about? That's the best film I've ever seen. So I'll watch it. I'll let you know. Yeah, well, um, I mean, genuinely, like anyone listening who, who wants to watch it, like it, I should say, like it does show animals being killed. Not not that often, but, it, you know, <laughs> seeing it once is, is enough, isn't it? But it's available on YouTube. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's 39 minutes long. There's there's a lot of really good footage in there. But, um, but yeah, considering how many excellent animal advocacy films and documentaries there are out there in my opinion this would not be the first one two or five documentaries i'd 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 get someone to watch i'd i'd put other things ahead of this in in my list okay i think it's time to move now so let's move on from campaigns to science we have two different studies here that have been released both featured in mainstream media firstly from the Public Library of Science journal, The Genetics of Vegetarianism. Yeah, so obviously, to be clear, this is a study based on vegetarians, not vegans, um, but you'll you'll see where the, the crossover comes. It was a huge study that was conducted. Over 5,000 strict vegetarians were compared with nearly a third of a million controls, over 300,000 controls. The author of the study was looking at genes and not not as in the thing you wear on your legs, but genetics, genes, that kind of genes. Um, <laughs> keep yourself calm, Rich, it's fine. Um, and basically, the, the authors of the study identified 34 genes with a possible role in vegetarianism. It just sounds stupid now. We're thinking of genes that people wear. What genes do vegetarians wear? No, genetics. What, those what kind brand of ge- were they? Shut up. Right, so... <laughs> The, the, pe- the authors of the study found 34 genes with a possible role or possible correlation 
to vegetarianism, three of these were statistically significant. So there's a very good chance that it wasn't a fluke. Several of the genes associated with vegetarianism um, have important functions in lipid metabolism, so the way that fats are digested, basically, and brain function, which the authors say it raises the possibility that if you metabolize fats in a certain way, and the effect it has on your brain goes a certain way, it may actually have an effect on someone's ability to remain on a vegetarian diet. Do you think there could be anything in this? Because even though even though the study is showing this, I, I still don't quite, almost, I don't want to say believe it, but I, I don't know. I'm sceptical. I, I understand your scepticism. I'm sceptical too. And also because it's not been that long that we've been eating cheese or we've been eating dairy and all these things. What, 10,000 years max? Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah, I have my reserves. Um, I think it's a lot more to do personally and with all, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I'm just giving an opinion. Uh, probably hormones have an effect here. So probably when you eat cheese, when you eat dairy, there's a hormone effect. And that's why, well, the milk of every mammal has hormones. So the the, the little kids they're trying to raise, you know, they, they stick um, to, to the food, you know. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the conclusion that the authors came to was that there could be a link in terms of the way that you digest fats and the effects it has on your brain and the effect that that has in terms of sticking to the diet. People do say they miss cheese a lot, don't they? So, Yeah, but, but that's that, because of casein. But, but also, that wouldn't apply to the vegetarians, would it? And this was a study on vegetarians. So that, that kind of link doesn't really work, does it? But maybe maybe fats in meats, you know, but could could that have an, an impact? Like some people would miss it more, perhaps? Well, it could be. And it could be also, uh, and I'm going on a tangent here, why some people get hooked up to drugs easier than others. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely heard that some people seem to genetically have more of a predisposition to, say, addictive type behaviours. Yes, exactly. So we could argue, you know, there's differences that probably we still researching and we still don't understand that makes some people choose certain things process certain behaviors or, or foods in different ways and that's why maybe some i know people that have smoked for 20 years only in social events and they never get uh, hooked to it yeah yeah absolutely i, th I think an, an interesting study along these lines would be to look at the the genes um compared to people's morals because I, 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 when I saw this study reported online, a lot of people in the comments were saying, no, vegetarianism or veganism is a moral choice. How can that have anything to do with genes? But also I wonder, well, actually, your morals come from your brain and your, your processing, doesn't it? And that can be affected by your genetics too. So that would be an interesting thing to look at as well. I think that's a dangerous place to go because if everything is determined by genetic, you know, there could be more discrimination moving forward. Absolutely, but you could still you could still establish a correlation, couldn't you? It's not saying that it's caused by it, but studies like this are just saying, look, there seems to be a correlation, there seems to be a match. I don't know, why didn't I get the British um, accent gene? Who knows why you didn't get the British accent gene, Richard? We will look into it more. Yeah, <laughs> should we move on to the second study? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. This one has originally been published in the Public Library of Science 2, but we got the story from The Guardian. World's dogs going vegan 
would save more emissions than UK produces. Yeah, this this was a fascinating story. It got reported in a lot of places. Um, and it's some more research conducted by our good mate, Professor Andrew Knight. Do you remember him? If you were very... I do. Yeah, you do. Well done, Rich. It's good to know you've been paying attention to the podcast. We featured his work back on episode one, where we covered his study on plant-based cats, who his study reported seems to be healthier than their carnivorous counterparts. So in this latest study that's been released this week, it further advocates having your pets be plant-based. It's looking at the effect of basically wholesale across the world. If all the cats went vegan, what would happen if all the dogs went vegan, just in terms of emissions, land space, and people that we could feed. It's not looking at anything behaviorally or socially. So the study estimated that cats and dogs consume about 9% of all land animals killed for food, which is quite interesting. It amounts to about 7 billion animals annually, huge amount, as well as, of course, billions of fish and aquatic animals. Now, here are some here are some sound bites for you. These are just some, some bits of maths that come from the study. If all the world's dogs went vegan, it would free up a larger land mass than Mexico. It'd feed about 450 million extra people, more than the entire population of the EU. And it would save more emissions than the UK produces. So that is if all the world's dogs went vegan. If all the world's cats went vegan, it would save more emissions than those produced by New Zealand. It'd free up a land area larger than Germany, and it'd feed about 70 million extra people. And as an aside, by his calculations, so the metric he was using, if all the world's people went vegan, it would save more greenhouse gases than all of those emitted by the entire EU. It would save land larger than Russia and India combined, and it would feed about 5.3 billion extra people. Obviously, we need to know what metrics he was using. Obviously, people could question it, um, but some really staggering numbers there. Rich, it's, it's got to be worth sharing this sort of data with people, hasn't it? Like, the, the numbers speak for themselves. Absolutely. I mean, brilliant study. As you say, we need to check the metrics and all this, but come on. I mean, all research points now towards the fact that animal agriculture is the main cause of deforestation, uh, the use of land, the use of water. So yes, it would be a big, big step forward. But I wanted to add a couple of things here. First of all, I'd be even happier if we left all those animals eating meat, but every human switched to vegan, you know? Uh, Can you imagine? What, why, is, why is that? Just because of the numbers? Well, first, because of the numbers. And secondly... I hope that people don't think that just by having a pet and not feeding that pet with a, another animal, that's enough, because it's still a 91%. I cannot see anyone feeding their pet plant-based but continuing to consume animal products themselves. I, I, yeah, you're quite right there. I would yeah. love to, I would love to, I would love to talk to someone that's like, oh, yeah, yeah, my cat's vegan, but I'm not. Like, that's not happening, is it? Oh, wow. Yeah. Caught me there. <laughs> um, anyway, I was also going to say that, for example, one of the things that I would be very interested to see, if there's any startup brand that starts using cultured meat to feed pets and how much that would save, land would save. Surely that would be like the world's most expensive pet food. Like certainly at this stage when like, when like cultured meat is is relatively new it's going to be so expensive 
Yeah, agreed. It will be very expensive probably at the beginning, but let's face it. I mean, from um, an ethical and environmental point of view, if someone has the resources to feed their pet with cultured meat, probably they'll go for it. And it's with everything in life, right? I mean, computers were so expensive 15 years ago, 20, 50, 40 years ago, and now you can buy a computer for less than 500 pounds. So, yeah, I don't know. At least... You know, people that think that their pets are obliged cannibals, probably the fact that they could eat cultured meat would be a step forward because they wouldn't have to deal with the dilemma because obviously, as you point, probably they're vegan themselves, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it's, I mean, it's great to have these numbers, isn't it? And just to see see the impact of these things. Um, my, I mean, my final question is, what what is Professor Knight going to come up with next? He's like the most prolific not only the most prolific academic at the moment, but like the most prolific vegan ad- advocate and vegan activist. He's like releasing stuff every week at the moment. Like he's he's going I know, for it, isn't and he? Very interesting stuff. Very interesting because sometimes you think, yeah, everyone needs to go vegan. And yes, we need to. But just the, the, just the numbers of all pets going vegan, the amount of land saved for what he says, that, that's just mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. And and like I say, it's been picked up by quite a few media outlets. So um, he's not just doing the studies like it's it's getting out there and people are hearing about it. So great news. Great news. We need to get him on the show. Um, Okay, let's move away from studies now to unfortunately some sad news. This one is from The Animal Reader. Amazon River dolphins die in mass due to drought and heat. Yeah, and before we get into details of this one, listeners should be aware that the following story, which we'll cover for probably two or three minutes, will contain details that that some might find especially upsetting. The bodies of 120 river dolphins have been found floating in part of the Amazon River since last week. Um, Now, experts suspect that the dolphin deaths were caused by severe drought and heat. Miriam Marmontel from the the Mamirua Institute for Sustainable Development in Brazil said, so far we have had a minimum count of 120 carcasses, including pink dolphins and tukuxis, with the majority, around 80%, being pink dolphins. If these mortality rates continue to increase, we'll enter a very critical situation considering that both species are threatened with extinction. Now, you may have seen these before. The Amazon River dolphins, um, a lot of them have got a striking pink colour. They're a unique freshwater species that are only found in the rivers of South America. Um, And researchers have said that low river levels during severe drought have heated water in parts of the river temperatures that are too hot for the dolphins. That seems to be what is causing it. A researcher called Ian Fleischmann uh, has said, we've conducted a series of analyses and environmental monitoring campaigns in Lake Tefe. The water temperature on the day of the death of these animals, September the 28th, um, when 70 of the carcasses appeared, in certain moments exceeded 39 degrees Celsius, um, which is extremely high value above the average. The, the average in that region is between 29 and 31 degrees. So, so that water is nearly eight, nine degrees warmer than normal, which is staggering, really. He added that thousands of fish have also died recently in Amazon rivers due to a lack of oxygen in the water. Really 
really, really horrid story, Rich. And I mean, last week we covered a story to do with environmental things or there was a possible link than it might have been to do with climate change. Whereas this is is cast iron, certain link between the two and and researchers have proved it. Yes, uh, it's a very, very sad story. This shows the effect of animal agriculture and climate change because both are very linked. Yeah, it's there's you know, it's hard sometimes to talk about these things because they're all individuals, a hundred and. 20 you said yeah yeah. these are only the numbers we might know i i just wanted to acknowledge the fact that i read that three species go extinct per hour Mm. that's a very very serious rate and a threat and we need to do more as individuals and as governments community just to save the environment save the species and just make this world a place where you know everyone has a space Yeah, absolutely. I think a trap that people can fall into sometimes is when they see things like this happening abroad, they think it's not going to happen to them, but to the the people in Brazil, it's happening to them. The dolphins in Brazil, it is happening to them. And I mean, the only ever so slight silver lining I can see to this story is actually, um, as animals go, dolphins are, are very, very loved, aren't they? People get very sentimental about that sort of thing. So perhaps this story getting covered might help uh, a few more people than normal perhaps uh, start to really see the impact of this and really feel it and maybe feel that it's it's now time to make a change for them if they if they weren't thinking so already yeah unfortunately sometimes we relate to certain animals because of the empathy we have with them so yeah although it's sad that it has to be this way this can help people uh, just raise awareness so we know what we're doing with our choices and try to mitigate as much as possible climate change. Anyway, let's move on. We've not had many stories in vegan fashion since we launched the podcast, but um, we've got one to share with you all this week. From The Economist, Balenciaga partners with Gozen to use animal-free material made by microorganisms. Yeah, so this is the news that French fashion house Balenciaga... Go on, you say it, Rich. You said it beautifully. Balenciaga. Oh, wonderful. Make that my ringtone. Uh, They've joined forces with... Balenciaga. Stop it. Uh, They've joined forces with US biomaterials startup Gozen to make garments from an animal-free and plastic-free material that is made by microorganisms. Uh, They're calling this product Lunaform. Uh, The material is formed when microorganisms make little ultra-crystalline patterns with the aid of nutrients and natural agents. And whilst leather alternatives are typically made from a mixture of materials, this this lunar form comes from a single process, which means that it is stronger than most of its competitors, including animal leather. So a real nice, real nice plus point that people can focus on here. Now, Rich, you'll be delighted to hear that they've used the material to design a maxi bathrobe coat. I know you were looking for a new one. Um, Part of the Fashion House's Summer 24 collection, the coat was recently exhibited at the Paris Fashion Week, which I'm sure you're aware of. The material is available uh, to be bought in 13 square foot sheets. Um, You can customise the thickness and texture and Companies can make it into to whatever they want. It it sounds incredible, isn't it? It is incredible. It's a brilliant step forward. We need more stories like these where, you know, we find new ways of designing leather-like or fabric or, you know, materials from which we can, can make clothes. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really good example of why it's so important that our movement is diverse and it's got all sorts of different people involved in it because 
when it comes to food things, I think I'm pretty decent at, at doing some good cooking and doing some good vegan food advocacy. But if you ask me to be, you know, showing different forms of, of clothing and fashion stuff and different materials, I wouldn't have the first clue of what to do. So thank goodness that we've got people that do and fr- from all backgrounds in all, all parts of, of the movement to, to make it a diverse one. So do you think it's important that we understand what these things are made from? Um, we can look a bit stupid if people say kind of, um, what's the fake mix from? Yeah, yeah. So like, I, I've I've definitely had that for, from me. I don't know that anyone's ever asked me about like a faux leather that I've been wearing or anything like that. But definitely if, if people say like, what's that fake meat actually made from and you don't know the answer, then people can say, oh, you don't even know what it's made from. So I, I think as much as possible, I, I don't think we all need to sit down and, and do a training course on all the different kind of microorganism leathers and, and things like that. But I, I guess the more that we can know about these things, the better, I would have thought. Oh, yeah, we need to be educated about what we wear, what we eat, and because we scrutinized many times. Yeah. Um, and you can't really say, well, do you know what your coat is made from? But, uh, well, yeah, probably, yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, I know mine. What about you? But yeah. no, that's, that's not building bridges, as I said. And today it's all about building bridges. So I, I, yeah. can, I, can I just slightly challenge something you said? You said we need to. I'd say it's good if we can. But I think equally, we do enough um, putting pressure on ourselves as vegan. So I don't want anyone listening to be like, oh, my God, I don't know anything about vegan leathers or whatever. Like, the more we can educate ourselves, the better. Um, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, I don't want anyone to start, you know, spending Sundays just reading about the latest Pinatex or mushroom leather or technology. No, I mean, unless you want to. Unless you want to, or unless your business is about it, right? <laughs> Indeed. Should we move on? Okay, I think we should, yeah. Should, let's move on. That's nine stories down, I think. Yeah. And finally, from The Express, BBC viewers fumed that broadcaster has gone totally woke as vegan hosts fishing show. Yeah, what you've got here is an absolutely hilarious barrage of people just ranting. Um, that That's the news, basically. The BBC released a fishing show or they i mean they've got this fishing show that's been going on for several seasons with a couple of well-known comedians uh, one of them was ill uh, so the the way that they posed the narrative in the show was that um the one who was ill said oh i'll get my mate to come on the show instead their mate was another comedian called lee mack uh, who is in fact vegan and he told the other person on the show paul whitehouse this is the thing oh this is what i was worried about doing when bob asked me to come on the show i don't fish and when i say i don't fish i don't mean i can't fish i mean i won't fish because i'm a vegan then the, the show continues um i'll go into a little bit about what what happens in the show but basically this got a lot of people cross and they took to social media and said oh this is a load of rubbish i turned it off fancy having a vegan on a fishing show what's the world coming to what's the bbc turning into blah 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 rich like Do you think this was a a bit of a suicidal move from the BBC or should we be grateful that vegans are getting a chance to feature on a fishing show, put their put their voice across or what are your initial thoughts? (laughs) Well, I think it's good in a way that that comedian went into the fishing show. I don't see why. I mean, we need to be inclusive, right? So (laughs) (laughs) it's true. So. Yeah, I think it was only 
it wasn't long, right? They didn't talk about it very long, so it didn't, uh, in a way, change the show that much. No, it didn't. They, they, they talked about veganism for about 10 seconds, literally. Um, the, the, what was nice was um, Lee Mack, the, the comedian who went on, who is vegan, he, he was quite self-deprecating as well. So he sort of took along a, a big, long piece of rope with a magnet at the end of it. And he said, don't worry, I'll do vegan fishing. And he kept throwing this rope in and seeing if he could find a teaspoon or a wedding ring in, in, in the bottom of the sea instead of finding a fish. And, I, you know, it, it, it had a really nice tone to it. They didn't dwell on it for too long. And to be honest, I think that the comments of people who were getting cross were just people being triggered, actually. Because at it, it, one point, the non-vegan host of the show, Paul Whitehouse, he said, to be honest, if everyone went vegan, it would at least end industrial animal agriculture which is one of the most horrific things in society so I, I think a lot of people were forced to confront things they didn't really want to confront when they sat down and, and watched the fishing show what was nice to see in the show is the fact that they were there was a, non, a vegan in a non-vegan show they were having a lovely conversation very respectful treating each other well um no you know no argument no discussion and i think that's something that we need to see more of yeah, absolutely, because the media is so quick to try and show people arguing about these things. I was many years ago I was invited onto a BBC debate um with a sheep farmer and they they just wanted us to argue. And um you know, I, th I think we need to get away from that, don't we? That debate's okay, but not not just having people arguing and it was it certainly wasn't that. It was a really nice tone. The the final thing I wanted to say was that I think actually what well, this was a really good example of is that if there's something, whether it's a food or whether it is a, a hobby or an activity or something that you liked to do before you were vegan, but then you decide you want to go vegan and you're worried, oh, I'm not going to be able to do that anymore. It kind of shows that it doesn't matter because actually the main thing that was happening in the show, despite the fact that one of them wasn't participating in the fishing, is that they were relaxing, they're enjoying each company, they were being meditative, they were living in the moment, they were having lovely conversations. And actually... I mean, I've, I've never gone fishing in my life, but I imagine that is a big part of it, a significant part of it. And actually, it shows that if you're worried you're going to miss something when you go vegan, actually, you don't you don't have to. You can still have the nice feelings. You can still have that same experience um, without animals being exploited. So really, really nice. Shame nicely you... said. Nicely said. Oh, cheers, mate. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's always amusing to see a few uh, people getting cross in the comment section. But uh, I think there's something we can learn from it. Well, a question to all of you listening. What are your thoughts on this week's news? Did anything get you shouting back at us uh, at our commentary? Is there anything that we've missed? Anything we've got massively wrong? Um, maybe you completely agree and want to get in touch and say, oh, we agree with everything you said. In which case, thank you so much. Uh, let us know your opinions. I'd be especially interested to hear thoughts on the animal rights documentary that we mentioned. We'll put a link in the show notes. I'd really like to hear that I've been too harsh um, because it, it really does pain me to say that a vegan documentary isn't particularly good. So I'd love to hear from you if you think that I'm wrong on that one. Yes, and just a reminder, if you spot news or articles that you think would catch our interest, get in touch with us by email at enoughofthefalafel at gmail.com. We're also at Enough of the Falafel on Facebook, Instagram or TikTok, where you can get a little sneak preview of the news we'll be covering in each episode. We'd love it if you gave us a follow.
this show is kindly sponsored by our friends at Fire and Flow Coffee Roasters. Um, I've personally used their stuff for years, um, and the great news is they're online as well as being based in the Cotswolds, so you can order their stuff, have it delivered to your door. Um, they're a specialty coffee roastery based in the Cotswolds with a fully vegan coffee shop on site. As I said in the intro of the show, they're vegan founded. They're run by three friends, Shah, Callum and Phil. And their specialty is roasting and supplying wholesale coffee beans to coffee shops, restaurants, hotels and offices. But you can also get their stuff online just for a cheeky bit of coffee at home. They love working with other businesses to help them get the most out of their coffee offering. They offer free barista training and full technical support for any business that wants to have their beans regularly. They're passionate about working with skilled and ethical minded farmers who produce the highest quality beans and fire and flow roast everything to perfection in small batches at their roastery in Sirencester. And if you're interested in the whole coffee roasting process, you can visit the roastery at any time. You can book onto one of their barista courses or a roastery tour or both. Why not do just do both? Um, you can do that via their website. It's fireandflowcoffee.co.uk. Or you can check out the fully vegan coffee shop, which has vegan pastries and flat white heaven. It's brilliant. Their coffee shops open seven days a week. So there's no excuse. They're open from nine till three. And you can give them a follow on Instagram to get the latest. It's at Fire and Flow Coffee. Anthony, do you know the best match for delicious, perfectly craft espresso? Um, I'm going to say a vegan croissant. No, it's warm, sour dairy milk. No, what? I'm joking, of <laughs> course. But we had a good laugh at an email from a listener this week who told us this story on the subject of free milk in schools. This is from Gina, and she says... When I was at school in the 1960s and 70s, we were given a third of a pint of milk every day. It was delivered in crates which sat outside in the sun until milk time. In the summer, it was usually sour by then. It was compulsory to drink it. I knew many people who were so put off that they never drank milk any other time. Anyway, my comment is, if Alpro or some other plant-based milk manufacturer offered free plant milk to schools, hopefully refrigerated, it would be available to many children who otherwise might never try it. I enjoyed episode three of the podcast. Nice, yeah. So actually, in a, in a way, that's an argument for schools receiving dairy milk for children because actually it sounds like it put off more people than it it won over obviously we don't want to advocate dairy being served to people but it sounded like it did a pretty rubbish job of of convincing people to drink dairy yeah absolutely yeah interesting food for thought well we um thanks for that email we also had a couple of um facebook messages which we'd like to share with you so the first one from karen who said i've started listening to your podcast today so just wanted to say hi and fab job really enjoying it thank you so much karen also had another one from claire who said my theory is that it's famous vegan Tobias Lynette who is listening in Belgium, but I could be wrong. Uh, she also says, I love how Rich seems to have learned English in Wales. She finishes by saying, Mucho admiratione to you both, and I look forward to more episodes. I think we should clarify, Rich, that you didn't learn English in Wales. No, but it seems like I've adopted a little bit the accent. <laughs> maybe 10 10 years of living in wales has given you a sort of pseudo english welsh spanish accent absolutely the nowhere man 
That's so lovely. Thanks to both Karen and Claire. To finish with, we had an email from your mum, didn't we, Anthony? Yes, we uh, did. Who heard your prediction that plant-based cabbage leather would soon be a thing. It turns out you were wrong because it already exists. Yeah, it was it was remarkable, this. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes. So vegan cabbage leather already existed a product you know you know the other ones that that we've looked at before rich and you sort of say oh tomato leather that would be hilarious you have this shoe that's like red with a little green bit on top and then you go onto the website and it just looks like boring black leather yeah yeah well these ones it actually looks like a cabbage leaf so like it's a no way yeah yeah it's a handbag um is on on their website it's a handbag and it just looks like a shriveled cabbage leaf um and there's like a bracelet as well um and it just looks like someone's just wrapped a cabbage around their wrist i've got to say it's not for me but kudos to whoever managed to come up with that so thanks mum for that email and thanks everyone for your correspondence remember we're on facebook we're on instagram and tiktok at enough of the falafel and your email should come to enough of the falafel at gmail.com okay rich should we move on to this week's discussion topic Yes. So there was a study released this week by the Frontiers of Communication Journal, and it got some press attention, including from the Daily Mail. The study was titled The Effect of Linking Vegan Dishes with Masculinity on Men's Attitudes Towards Vegan Food. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a really interesting one, really interesting design of the study. But you'll see the conclusion was was um, quite neutral, I suppose. So the aim of the study was examining the effect of a masculine framing of a vegan dish on men's attitude towards vegan food and veganism. So so basically looking at how you describe some vegan food and see if it affects people's opinions on veganism and their, and their likelihood to eat that food, specifically men. They were seeing, if, could you change how you describe the food in a way that makes men more likely to eat it. The experiment was conducted online. There were just under 600 participants. So sounds like it's been set up really nicely. Wonder what the conclusion is going to be. Well, basically, the masculine framing of the dishes didn't influence people's attitudes towards the dishes or veganism in general. So basically, it had no effect. I had some questions in terms of like, well, how could you describe some food in a more masculine way? I couldn't actually find any examples of it, but I I guess they might be sort of saying that something's chunky and protein rich and lean or or, or whatever, as opposed to saying, oh, it's silky and airy and fluffy. I I don't know. But like, obviously, these are gender stereotypes and that's, that's a critique of the study. But Anyway, no matter what they did, it basically didn't make any difference. It doesn't matter how manly you make vegan food sound, according to this study, it's not going to make a difference to men's likelihood of eating it. So I guess the question is, why is it that there are far fewer men following a vegan lifestyle than women? Yeah, indeed. If, if this study had a different outcome, then maybe we could point to the way that, that food is framed and, and, and what have you. So that's going to be the focus for our discussion now. Before we do get into the discussion, both Rich and I talked about it and we thought it was very important to acknowledge that this discussion is going to be predominantly be a binary discussion of gender. 
Um, so we'll be discussing the differences between men and women. That is not a reflection of our stance on, on issues of gender and identity. We're both aligned with the LGBTQ plus rights movement. We hope we'd be considered to be allies of that important bit of social justice. And indeed, that's been highlighted as, as being more needed than ever this week, following the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's awful comments at the Conservative Party conference that, that basically denounced the whole idea of identifying as trans. He was basically saying it's it's not a thing, which, I mean, I'll speak for myself, I completely disagree with it. Awful, awful statement. And personally, I feel deeply ashamed that my country's prime minister has said such a thing. So really important that we acknowledge that that is not how we feel about things. Um, but that said, this discussion uh, is going to be referring to studies, existing articles out there on the subject of of what proportion of vegans identify as as each gender. And, and frankly, there's unfortunately there's next to nothing out there um, that was anything other than a binary discussion of gender with with relation to veganism. Obviously, if anyone listening has thoughts on this, has found any articles or studies that include non-binary genders and their prevalence in the vegan movement, we'd be delighted to hear about it. In in fact even personal anecdotal insights would be really welcome and encouraged. Thanks, Anthony. It was really important that we got that across before we started. So I guess the starting point to the discussion is to look at what proportion of vegans currently identify as male. Yeah, it's it, it's a it's quite a difficult one to find in that obviously any, any study in, in terms of numbers of people it becomes out of date as soon as it's published because the numbers of people identifying as things changes all the time and a lot of them online if you look and you type in like how many people are vegan or what proportion of uh, vegans are women it's really hard to find the original source of the information so what i decided to to use as a recent um, reference point was actually the veganuary exit survey of 2023 now obviously that is just people who are doing veganuary that is not necessarily people identifying as vegan but it was up to date and it did include non-binary and other genders so the proportion of people doing veganuary in 2023 85 percent were female 12 percent were male and two percent um, expressed another gender um, or preferred not to say. Other online sources gave different proportions. The highest male proportion I could find anywhere was 33%. So still only a third. Um, and generally, it was much lower than that. Like Rich, it, I guess we should, before we move on, say, like, is is that our experience? So is that your lived experience, that there are far more vegans who are women than men? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that's the proportion that that probably estimate anyway um i see a lot more vegan women than men around so yeah that that would be my experience what about you yeah i i, I would say just in terms of general people that that i meet although i i did kind of think about it and actually i've got quite a few friends who are men and are, are vegan but i guess perhaps the fact that i'm i'm a man might mean that i i have more vegan male friends but um yeah seems to be both our lived experience and born out in the data. So, I mean, let's look at some studies that are out there that try and attempt to explain this skew. Obviously, it's a really complicated matter, isn't it? And there's, I think we were discussing it, Rich, like there's there's so many factors at play, aren't there? Like it's not going to be just one reason 
Um, no, it's not going to be one reason. There's many elements there. Probably the number one will see its perception, identity, environment. So yeah, there's many reasons. Yeah. So there, there was a study here that that we found um, from ScienceDirect.com, um, and this was published in 2019 by Daniel Rosenfeld. Uh, it's called Gender Differences in Vegetarian Identity. So again, apologies, it's not. It's not exclusively vegan study, but same sort of thing. Um, And how men and women construe meatless dieting. Interesting thing there was that that a conclusion was that women are more likely to show pro-social behavior. So pro-social behavior is defined as behavior that positively affects the well-being of others. Women just seemed more inclined towards it, which if we look at veganism as a social justice movement, either in terms of Uh, animal welfare, or I guess now more so environmental justice, then behaving in a way that helps others is perhaps something that women are more inclined to do. So that was one study offering a suggestion. One of the favourite ones that I looked at was was carried out in 2018 by a psychologist called Carolyn Semler. Um, And what she was looking to do was to set out to uncover if women were better at resolving the so-called meat paradox. So basically, when you find out what happens to animals in industrial animal agriculture, what do you do about it? Do you do you try and deny that and have that sort of cognitive dissonance or do you act upon it? And what was really interesting in this study was when people were shown images and videos of animal agriculture, the women's views after seeing that were more sympathetic and they were more they were less inclined to have a positive impact uh, to have a positive attitude towards eating meat. However, the men were basically completely unaffected by it. It didn't it didn't change their opinion. So they seemed to like double down on what they believed, whether you think it's denial or, or, or whatever. Really interesting. That I mean, Rich, did you want to respond to that quickly before I, I cite another study? Well, yeah, it, it's interesting because I think in a way we are taught from a very early age that we need to, because of the gender we're born with, there's certain attitudes and certain... Uh, skills is not the name, you know, but certain... Like, there's certain characteristics that are inherent of our gender... And funny enough, I think that when we grow up, we believe, oh, because I'm a man, I need to be strong. I need to be a leader. I need to be certain things. And in the end, you know, compassion is not one of those. So I think in a way, yeah, we are taught to resist emotions, not to show emotions, not to be compassionate, just to be strong. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there there are further studies kind of showing these differences, some of which you might attribute to to genetics um, and others you might attribute to societal things that we grow up and learn. So there were studies, for example, showing that women were more likely to heed warnings about things and change their behaviours accordingly. So if, if they found out information saying that smoking is harmful for you or unprotected sex is dangerous, um, they were more likely to change their behaviours when receiving that information than men who basically carried on being risky and sort of didn't change their behaviour. So I, I, I don't know whether you'd say that's a, a nature or nurture thing, but there have been studies showing that. Um, a really interesting one done by the University of Southampton was looking at a, a group of men who were trying to follow a plant-based 
lifestyle and and how much they adhered to it, how much they stuck to it. And actually, what a lot of the men were saying was that the biggest factor for them was how much acceptance they got from their peer group. So if they had a peer group that said, oh, brilliant, you're doing that, fantastic, like you've got our support, then it was much easier for them to stick to. Whereas if they had a peer group that was saying, what are you doing that for? That's absolute rubbish. That really made it unlikely that they would continue with the lifestyle, with the diet. So I, I thought that was a really, really interesting one. Just one last one that I'll cover before we open the discussion up. This one was put out by the Vegan Society last year, in fact, April 2022. Really good study, I'd say the best out of any of them. And it did mention LGBTQ plus um, in there as well um, and, and acknowledge that more research needs to be carried out, in, including that group. But they, they covered loads of different things. The one thing I'm going to highlight is that they said that if you've already rejected one societal norm, it's easier to reject another. So, for example, if you are uh, non-binary with your gender identity, you've already rejected one societal norm. So then rejecting the idea of consuming animal products becomes a lot easier because you've already kind of stepped off the bandwagon of going along. Sorry to use the term like being a sheep, but like you're not being a sheep like everyone else. You're 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 saying, well, I I am who I am. I'm going to live my life how I want to. And it acknowledged that people who'd already done that in one way or another, whether it's their sexuality or or, or whatever, then that made it a lot easier for them to be vegan, um, which of course is also countercultural at the moment. But I'd really recommend out of all the studies, and we'll make sure it's in the show notes, look in that one done by the Vegan Society that, that covered lots of different things. So Rich, I've obviously covered quite a lot of studies in, in one go there, and I'm sure listeners will have had thoughts um, coming up when when we've been summarising them already. What what were your responses to, to some of those studies and maybe the assumptions that they're making? Yeah, I really like the one by Carolyn Temmler. And I think, you know, that the fact that women were more likely to make the connection between animals and meat while men were just unmoved, that's quite... Sh- not shocking, we should know by now. But yeah, that was kind of a highlight. Like, yeah, yes, that's what the study says. And I can relate to that in my day-to-day life with other people, that the uh, men usually do not get m- moved as much as women. So that really stood out to me in that study. And, well, I really like the one by the Vegan Society, you know, when um, I think it really, it's very comprehensive. It's the one that really you can read and it's very comprehensive. Just in terms of the study that was released this week, do you think that um, it was a little bit too short-termist in that they're trying to go against something that has been ingrained in people's lives for, for decades and decades and decades, and they're just saying, right, we've got this dish here and we're going to change the way that we describe it so that it sounds more manly um, and hope that it, it, it makes an impact? Like, that's very short-term, isn't it? But maybe maybe if that sort of thing happened over 10 years and there was a concerted effort from i don't know food agencies or whatever to to make food plant-based food sound more manly i mean i kind of hate that term to be honest but like then it might actually have an impact rather than it just being a one-off i don't know you know you know what it made me really think that that study would you rather go to a place called devil's hell burgers or would you go to a place that says heaven compassion burgers what do you think the majority of the people would choose i I'd definitely do the first one i don't know about anyone else so that makes me think that probably how you label things 
won't make a big difference because sometimes even when you go to festivals you see queues in the in the places that have dirty hellish gross blah blah blah. Yeah. people are there yeah I, I mean i have to say I, just in general i don't like the thought of of us assigning a gender value to certain adjectives or or, or whatever like that it's it's far more complex than that and i i think it's just a i don't know it's a quite a reductionist way of looking at things oh all we need to do is we need to come up with the perfect manly adjective for tofu and everyone will be eating it i i don't really like that approach i have to say no i, I must agree with you here no i don't like this approach either but there's something about names that really drives people towards that so maybe you know it might have an impact we'll, we'll see that with time the only way to see it is with time yeah absolutely so i mean moving on do, do you think it matters rich if more vegans are women like is, is that a problem it's a problem for men, right? Makes we think. Makes you think a lot. Why are we not more vegan? Why Why is it so difficult for us to change? Why do we have it so ingrained? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is. It is a problem because it. Yeah, we we're not as open as change as as women. Well, you and I, you and I seem to have uh, have, have managed it. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, it does make you a bit depressed, I suppose, <laughs> doesn't it? But um, I, I, I guess, I guess the reason I ask is because, like, if I don't know, let let's say a billion people went vegan tomorrow, and they all happen to be women, well, that's great news, isn't it? Like, what, why, why does it matter at this stage? We're such a minority. Like, surely, I mean, I wouldn't celebrate a load of fascists becoming vegan tomorrow. I'd draw the line there. But actually, in a sense, it doesn't matter who we get over the line. If they're all women, uh, that, that, that doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter. And probably that will happen that way. Probably women will be the first to fully adopt veganism. But it also makes you think, like, is it because we belong to a generation that's a bit older? Will new kids be born with different sort of you know, attitudes versus food. Because if I'd, I, we need to know the breakdown by age here, because yeah. uh, probably there's more women over 50 that are vegan than men over 50 that are vegan. And we should see if that proportion is narrowing down by age. I would what do you think? I do, would do you think so. youngsters are more likely to be vegan in a more narrow, you know? In a more way. balanced way, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would hope so, because I, I think, like, a, like I've already referenced, I really dislike gendered terms and, and gendered adjectives and, oh, men are more likely to do this and women are more likely to do this. Now, fair enough, if a study is showing that, fair enough. But but actually, in terms of us saying, oh, women are more compassionate or, or, or things like that, I, I don't think phrases like that are, are useful. And, and we want to try and... If, the, if there's something in our genetics that makes that more likely to be the case... Then, then great. But actually, as individuals and in a society and in the culture that we that we purvey, we need to be getting away from that, don't we? Yeah, I, I agree with what you say. But the problem here is that difference becomes very, very clear the moment you're born. Why a girl gets a doll and a, a, a guy gets a ball, you know? And from that moment, you build up identities, you, you know? Yeah, you... You do, but like, I mean, this is a maybe a separate debate, but like a lot of that is from the influences that we have on us, which we have we have the ability 
to influence, don't we? Like if if a child, I don't know, I'm going to the Jungle Book here for some reason, but like if a what? If, if, so hear me out. So if a boy is is born and is adopted by a group of ten vegan men, that that boy is presumably going to develop a strong compassion and become vegan and and become very empathic and and, and things like that. Um, whereas if a, if a girl is adopted by ten very strident non-vegans, like they they presumably, I mean non-vegans can be compassionate, of course. I don't want to make that generalization, but you know if 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 that girl is brought up by ten people who aren't very compassionate, it it, it doesn't matter what their genetics are, are saying. That they're, they're probably going to go the same way, aren't they? Okay, let me break this down. What you're saying, and I think what we I'm saying is not that different. So first of all, we see an element here of um, identity and environment. So the environment you're born in clearly dictates the identity you have, yeah. okay? At least in the early stages. And obviously, I'm not going to talk about genetics here because my knowledge is not enough. So I'm going just to talk about environment. So yes, probably your environment is going to determine the way you think about things. And we all need social support, especially when we're growing up. You know, you're a teenager, your hormones are all over the place. You need to identify with a model. Your peers set the tone and the example of who you are and who you will become. But the most important thing is you need to be accepted. Mm. And probably to be accepted, you might be doing compromises that you're not even aware of. So you might start eating meat and engaging in certain behaviors just to be included in that group. And even, you know, maybe even be considered a leader in the group or maybe, you know, become in a higher um, hierarchy. So... Unfortunately, still nowadays, the identity role for males is very different from the one from females. And I, I know it's this is just saying males and females, but that, that's what the studies are here. So probably, you know, men identify themselves as certain characteristics as more dominant. We need to be more strong. We need to go to the gym. We need to have less emotions. And that's all environmentalistic for what we've seen yeah yeah it absolutely is and like that's that's hopeful for for me in in terms of in terms of the the world becoming vegan that the world's population becoming vegan like we do need 49 percent of the population as as those who identify as men to become vegan for that to happen so if if there's something biologically that's preventing that happening then i'd be very depressed but actually that that doesn't seem to be the case um so there is hope but but actually, yeah, we, we do we do want people who are men to be able to cross that bridge. Um, so and- I would ask you one thing, if you don't mind. So do you think there's a correlation between being vegan, non, not wanting to be vegan or wanting to eat meat and the necessity of dominance or status or showing that you're strong um i mean i i don't know i i I kind of want to respond i want to go back to a study that i referenced earlier the the one from the university of southampton where they were basically saying like men seem to need a, a lot a much higher degree of approval from their peers in their choices and i i think that's more important 
than is to to seem powerful or, or, or what have you. It's more actually not being shamed for what you're doing, not being outcast for what you're doing. And a, a study would point to that. But d- did you have some thoughts on that? Yes, I think ac- acceptance is important. But what I've noticed is in many cultures, uh, masculinity seems to be, you know, very important in different cultures. So dominance, the fact, you know, not showing emotions, being able to cope. People have, or in many cultures, masculinity and not feeling emotion is seen as a better way of coping when probably it's not, you know, we just think that. So I think there's a bit of a danger there that it will be more difficult to accept what maybe, you know, a group of women are saying just because of that dominance. Well, yeah, and I was going to say the same thing. Like, I asked the question, does it matter if more vegans are women? Well, I think if if a billion women went vegan tomorrow and and our movement was 99% women, that's surely going to make it less likely that that men would would join it because it would be seen as a female centric movement um and I, I think that could be off-putting so i think really we we don't want that that balance to to go out of kilter with the the normal distribution of gender in society would be my thought but i mean there's there's probably other other opinions people have on that um i mean let let's move on shall we rich in, in terms of you know we've talked about well what do studies say does it matter if if more vegans are women like in terms of action points and 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 things that we can do about it like what what can we do about this this um this disparity and this fact that proportionally speaking there are much fewer men who are vegan probably it's up to men themselves to convince their own peers because there's an element you know when you're told things by other groups let's say or the genders that you might not follow but if your peers are going vegan probably there's a much higher likelihood that you will yourself so probably it's up to us to talk to other uh, men and you know have chats with them reach that tipping point yeah and and i i would agree with you there it's um it's a criticism that's often been leveled at people who are maybe campaigning from this country about issues going on in other countries to to do with animal rights that actually whilst whilst support is is gladly received in in some respects it can be a bit patronizing or actually that there's a lot of there's a lot of issues that we need to deal with ourselves in this country um with regards to animal rights or any other issue and it's better to better to talk to your own people about these things and so i think probably the same could be said for for vegan men and I think maybe just continuing to to promote the visibility, like the more vegan men that you see and that you know about, the more acceptance you're perhaps going to feel or, or perceive that you will feel if, if you start following that lifestyle yourself, particularly if, if there are studies showing that as men, we, we want to f- find acceptance in our peer group. If we know that actually there are other vegan men out there then it it makes it less of a leap, doesn't it? I mean, can I ask you, Rich, like how (laughs) we're making it sound there like that's a real big priority for for vegan men. So like if you're if you're a man and you're vegan, like this should be top of your agenda. Like, is is that how you see it? Like if if you're a vegan man, should this be what you're putting all your efforts towards? 
Um, well, I don't know. That depends on the person, right? Are we talking about vegan activism? Yeah. Well, that should be a key part. But, I mean, it's all about getting... I think the first, first thing we should do is have a strategy and a plan, right? Mm. So rather than... You might think, okay, what can I do to make a difference? Well, some people will start a business, other people will shout in front of a McDonald's, and other people will talk to peers. So that, that, but that goes back also to train ourselves, Right, I yeah. think if you're a man and you want to convince the peers that veganism is the way, you need to be prepared for a lot of backlash probably. So why not prepare yourself? Take some courses. Think about it. Find other peers. Yeah. And maybe after, start your activism. I, I think, yeah, I, I personally would say that whilst ideally this would be a priority for for men who, who are vegan, actually the most important activism that you can do is the one that comes most naturally to you and that you naturally feel like you have most enthusiasm and energy and resources for and if the th- I mean personally like saying it out loud if if I was told my number one vegan activism priority had to be to try and convince more men to be vegan I'd just be going oh my god like how am I going to do that like I don't I don't consider myself a typical man by any stretch of the imagination so kind of that that probably um, would stifle me quite a lot I think what you're saying you've just said a very important thing here you've just said I'm not a typical man or you I'm not how did you phrase that well I don't consider myself to be well, unfortunately, nowadays, still many men or many men are in top corporations, are the ones, you know, in the most senior positions. What we need to do is just try to change the stereotypes. You yeah. know, I can do something as individual and we can all do things as individuals. We all should be doing something about it in more or less degree. But come on, we need to change the stereotypes, the ads. Um, and I think to a certain degree that's been happening. But the more than we, there's no difference between gender, the more easier it will be to accept veganism. So that's something that I would like to see more ads mm. with gender neutral and um, basis and with more, you know, not putting together a role with a gender. Yes. And that's it, because we, we're talking about, oh, how can I change men? And you and I are both thinking like, oh, my God, can I have another task, please? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, can I have something easier? I promise I'll do it. But we're both thinking like, oh, gosh, no, what do I do? I do to, to my neighbors? Do I go to a smoking club and say, you know what, you should go vegan? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, no. But things like this, little by little, if we start changing advertising, we start changing roles, we start changing the way masculinity is perceived and what a male is that will change more naturally i think having said that i've gone on a tangent here but having said that yeah uh, i agree with what you say that you know that um, it's about what you feel more inclined and naturally doing to contribute to the course will probably get you the best result yeah i think yeah i think it's about not forcing it and actually like I, I feel a lot more educated having researched for this episode. Like I feel a lot more aware of some of the obstacles that men might have to becoming vegan, sticking with veganism. And actually just having those in your back pocket, being aware of them, that that can then just be there as a resource or, or something just to bear in mind in terms of 
you know, when people don't do come across obstacles or barriers to, to making those compassionate choices, if you can kind of anticipate them a little bit, it might just help lubricate the process, help somebody through things um, in a way that perhaps might not be possible if if you weren't aware yourself of, oh, do you know what? A lot of men need acceptance from their peer group. So I'm going to try and anticipate that with with my friend who's trying to go vegan or whatever. It's just just having those tools at your disposal, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It, but, and that's why it's so important to educate yourself and gain the skills needed, you know, to, to do these things. Okay, Rich, right. We're going to, I'm going to give you a moment to think. We'll pause the recording. I want you to come up with, we'll finish off with one, <laughs> one call to action, one, one thing that can be done off the back of this discussion. We're discussing why aren't more men vegan? So one, one thing that can be done. If I could only highlight one thing, I'd say don't be afraid of rejection. I think we've been too, you know, accustomed lately not to feel rejection, not to feel the negative things around us to be accepted. And don't get me wrong, it's important to be accepted, but we also need to not be afraid of rejection and stick to our values, know ourselves, know who we are. So I'd say don't be afraid of rejection. And actually that links to that vegan society survey, doesn't it? In that they were saying that basically once you've kind of experienced that stepping out of the dominant culture in, in one way, um, then then you're kind of fine for it to keep happening because you then it doesn't feel like rejection, does it? It's just like, well, this is just who I am, so stuff it. Yeah, and the best things in life happen outside of your comfort zone. So let's get used to being outside it. My call to action would be actually to make less things about gender. So make make gender less of an issue here because actually if we're saying there are gendered things that are leading i don't think it's that gendered things are leading more women towards veganism i think it's that gendered things are stopping more men go towards veganism so if we make things just in society in general less about gender because it it doesn't bloody matter does it then actually those barriers will go down by themselves and a lot more other good in lots of other social justice issues uh, will be done too so i think um gender doesn't matter does it doesn't matter who you are you can still be who you want to be and live a good old life eh yes and we all need to be respected we all need to be loved we all need to be um within a group and accepted and all this amen to that <laughs> So a question to all of you listening right now what are your thoughts like are there are there reasons that are stopping more men becoming vegan that we haven't covered um is there anything that we've said that you completely disagree with because this is an ongoing discussion and we all need educating don't we so we would absolutely love to hear your voices too on this podcast it's not just the anthony and richard show enough of the falafel at gmail.com is the place to send your thoughts questions comments and concerns regarding any of the news stories we've covered this week or anything we've just covered in the discussion Rich, we're almost at the end of the episode now. Thanks again for being here and holding the space with me, as per usual. You're welcome. Thanks also for being here and thanks to all of our listeners too. Anyway, that's enough of the falafel from us this week. Thank you everyone for listening. I've been Richard, he's been Anthony, and this has been episode four of Vegan Week.